Today's scripture reading is out. Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. John 7, 1 through 13, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the work you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about, about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. I'm going to keep reading into 14 through 24, or 17 through 24, as that is actually where we'll spend more of our time today. 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body? Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. This is a, the section of Scripture that is the, the Feast of the Booths. And we talked about this a while ago, and then John Mitchell last week just did a brilliant job kind of setting up what the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles is. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. But this is a section of scripture where Jesus is continuing to kind of jump into the religion that they are operating in and trying to reorient and rework their understanding back to this is about Jesus. This is about me and about my father. And so this entire section, we see all kinds of really wonderful kind of nuggets of truth that answer this question that every single one of us has always asked is, how do we know Jesus is truly true? How do we know he is who he says he is? How do we know that these things 
about him are actually true? What, is, what evidence do we have? And that's, that's a question that, that ultimately the scriptures will look at, but John hides no kind of qualms about this is his intention. He tells us that this is what he's doing inspired by God, that he is going to show us through many different pieces of history and interactions and teachings that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is fully God, he is fully man, and that life comes through him and him only. In fact, he comes to this festival even after he told his brothers he wouldn't, the, the text that Kyle read earlier, and, and yet he shows up because he's showing up on his timeline, on God's timeline. And in the middle of the booth, in the middle of the, the kind of the feast and everything that's happening, right in the middle, he walks into the temple and starts teaching. Now, these questions that they start doing, they, they, the way that he's teaching, they say that they marveled. This idea of like, man, he's so smart. It's brilliant. How is he doing this? This doesn't make sense. And you got to understand, there's multiple people, different crowds at the temple. There are crowds that were a part of him on the other, in the Sea of Galilee and watched him do the whole feeding of 5,000. There are people that have seen all kinds of miracles with him. And then there are the religious leaders that are also struggling with him. And since his action with the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda and telling him to carry his mat on the Sabbath have been seeking to kill him, have been seeking to arrest him, to, to, to stop him because he's gaining more and more and more traction. And so you see this interaction where they even at one point they're like, he's got a demon, who's trying to kill you? Because there's probably people in the crowd that aren't aware of the religious leader's intent to try and kill him. There's a big crowd of people that are trying to figure out who he is. And so the ones that are marveling at him may not even be the ones that are killing him or that want to kill him. They're probably the people that are, are amazed at how brilliant he is. But there's something we have to understand in teaching in the temples and synagogues in this day. Every teacher usually had some kind of study. They had spent some kind of time understanding what it meant to, to know the scriptures. And to, they followed under some rabbi or went to some rabbinical school where they had some amazing rabbi's name that was over them. And that's what this question comes to. is essentially in verse 14, 15, how can he be so smart? See, they're all still trying to answer, who is Jesus? And then the root of this, again, like I said, is, is, is our question day in and day out, the way that we live our lives is a wrestling with who Jesus is. The way that we teach and serve is a wrestling with who Jesus is. And in this text, in the rest of chapter 7, we see a myriad of answers to it. And the first one he comes to is, is his authority. The question is, how can you be so smart? They're saying, who is your rabbi? What traditions are yours? What, who did you study under? What school did you go? Where was your advanced study done? You have none of these credentials. You're not carrying some, some rabbi's name that all of us know. In fact, we don't even know if you ever did it. You're just a carpenter from Nazareth. You spent time working with your hands. You didn't spend time studying. So how are you so well learned? When Jesus is answering him, he says, look, in effect, he's saying, I'll comply, I'll answer this. But it's not an answer you're going to be excited about because it's not going to be some rabbi's name. It's the answer that I came, I got the answer, I got the wisdom from God. My wisdom's from God. He, he Essentially, he's explaining the nature of his religious authority. See, in this time, the way that they believed it, all the way since Moses, that Moses and the studies, the people that followed him, they were passing down authority along the way as they went to these rabbi schools and they went through this. So you had authority once you sat underneath someone and learned everything they had to teach you, and then you went out, and that was you were speaking on behalf of their authority. So in essence, the Jews believed at this time that their authority had been passed down from Moses, carrying the law all the way through, and they have been working their way, and that's how they had their authority. And Jesus, by stepping in not underneath those rabbi schools, he's breaking what, in essence, to them, they're holding so tightly. 
Because if all of a sudden Jesus can speak with wisdom that doesn't come and pass down through the rabbis, that's, that, then somehow we've disconnected our understanding from Moses. And this is what they were wrestling with. He's saying, look, my, my, my authority was passed down, but not through rabbis or ordination that came there. In fact, my ordination came from heaven. Jesus' problem is not that he's not ordained. They're just wondering, his problem is that he's not ordained by the rabbis. They're wondering what his tradition is, where his authority is, who's authorized his teaching. And Jesus' answer, again, is clear. I teach directly from God. And the way that he shows his authenticity and his authority to this answer is brilliant. It's brilliant because, and honestly, it's, it has so many practical implications for you and I today. See, Jesus goes on and says, look, th- this is how we, we know that he has authority. He says in verse 18, he says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. See, Jesus' mission is to honor God, to deflect glory from himself back to God, which is also a sign of his authority. He says, the reason why I can speak with such authority is because I'm not making it about myself. So the reason why you can see that I have no falsehood in me is because I'm not looking to be crowned by you and be liked by you. I'm doing only the will of the Father who sent me. My authority, my authenticity comes from God, and the reason you can see it displayed is because I'm seeking no glory for myself, but only reflecting it and deflecting it to our Father who is in heaven. See, a person who represents no one but himself and talks in his own initiative is naturally trying to win the approval of others. But one who seeks the honor of the one he represents is truthful, not false. If we really seek God's will, then we will not worry over who gets the glory. All truth is God's truth, and God alone deserves the glory for what he has taught us. That means that no matter what you do or what you and I do for God's purposes should always, always be about us decreasing and him increasing. We should never be giving or taking the accolades because anything that any one of us does is done by the power of the Spirit, which is ours in Jesus Christ alone. One scholar says it this way. He says, are we speaking the truth or are we only doing it to boost our own status, prestige, or wealth? Many times in the history of the church, people have accused preachers and teachers of the latter, and sometimes they have been proved right. Verse 17 is important here, too. People often accuse Christians of advancing their own ideas rather than God's. Hear this. This is so important. Read this again. People often accuse Christians of advancing their own ideas rather than God's when the people concerned don't really want to hear what God has to say to them. Blaming the church is a convenient way of ignoring God's costly and demanding call. But verse 18 still forms as much a challenge to today's church as today's world. If the church is really living out the sacrificial love of Jesus for God and the world, it will become clear that it is not seeking its own glory, but the glory of the one who has called and sent it. That is why there's no falsehood in him. He's not seeking his own glory. He's not doing his own will. Really, if you think about it, there's not a single one of us in this room that can say that we can fully operate without any self-centeredness. Yet Jesus is able to do it. And that in and of itself is enough proof that he is the Son of God. 
to me because he's seeking no glory for himself. When he could have had a cush and comfortable life with what he knew and who he was. So he challenges him. The third way that we can see that Jesus has authority is he comes back to Moses. And now, again, it's important for us to remember that that Moses was the pinnacle of truth. He was the one that was held up in the highest regard to most of the Jews around this time. And they're saying, he he comes back to the statement because they say, well, you're crazy. He has a demon that's like, you're crazy. Why, who's trying to kill you? And then he speaks about the reason why the religious leaders of this day are struggling with him is because he did this healing of this crippled man on the Sabbath. And we talked about that back in chapter five. He did this work and they knew it. And this is what they were so upset about. And so then he goes, okay, well, let's just engage in this. Let's, let's have the conversation here. And he talks about how the Jews have this practice of circumcision that happens because it was passed down from the Mosaic law. And he says, well, not from necessarily the Mosaic law. It was the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob did it beforehand. But either way, he kind of sets them straight. He says, the Jews have, but you, you say that on the eighth day, you are to circumcise a male baby. You are to do that on the eighth day, even if that falls on the Sabbath. And the reason why is there was a, there was a picture, a visualiz- visualization of God's people becoming saved, being healed into his people through this circumcision act. And so the Jews had decided, and all of their, uh, all of their uh, rabbis and all of the, kind of the, the Jewish studies talk about why we can take and follow this law when it conflicts with this law. And so what they had realized is they could, they could stop enacting the laws of the Sabbath to make sure that they enacted the law of the circumcision if those two days coincided. It was Jesus is saying, look, this is, this is insane. You're saying that you can do this based on this. And he's kind of seeming like he's saying they're breaking the law, which they're actually not. But he's saying, look, if it's sufficient for you to recognize the superiority of the circumcision law over the Sabbath, And Jesus points out that that's the case, which is performed on a single part of a male and is allowed on the Sabbath. How much more is it to heal the man's whole body? If you can do this one small act that God asked you to do on the Sabbath, then how much greater is it to do this massive act where an entire man is healed in this moment? You try to kill me. You think that there is a more holy way to enact the law, all the while forgetting that the Sabbath was to enjoy God, not to enact more rules. What's interesting, even the way that they're trying to kill them, they're willing to break the law of Moses to kill him based on their misunderstanding of the law. And this is what happens when we get stuck in religion. When we get stuck in religion, we start justifying a religious belief over an obedient walk with the Lord. And we need to understand God and his, and his wisdom and, and these things. But Jesus is saying, look, you've, you've missed it. You've missed it. You've made the law more valuable than the souls, the people that are trying that God is after. Neither Jesus nor his opponents were actually breaking the law. His point was that if we're willing to do good on the Sabbath, they're rendering false judgment on him by getting angry when he did good on the Sabbath. He comes back and says, you guys, you guys have missed it. And this now, this is hard because if you felt like you knew something, like if I got up, Kyle's leading worship here, but I got up here and I don't play guitar, I don't play instruments at all, I got up and started trying to tell him how to play guitar, it'd be kind of foolish. In a lot of ways, that's what Jesus is doing to these religious leaders. These were the experts of the law. And he's saying, you have missed it. 
You misunderstood it. You don't get it. You're missing it completely. And it's important for you to see this because ultimately what I'm trying to do is call you to repent like John the Baptist did originally. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So how do we know Jesus' choice? Skipped over a section that it really ties wonderfully to chapter 6. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But in verse 17, he says this really interesting statement that at first, if we just take it at face value, we assume like, oh, it's, it's about what we do. Okay, let's, let's figure this out. So verse 17, he says this. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So this, this statement, if anyone's will is to do God's will, is this, is this understanding that, that, that spiritual understanding is not produced solely by learning facts or, or procedures, but rather it depends on obedience to the known truth. And ultimately what Jesus is getting at here, and we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more, but ultimately what he's getting at is that, is that apart from him, you cannot know him. Apart from knowing Jesus, you cannot obey even the law. Because this is what he says. When he asks the question, he says, is not, was not the law of Moses given to you? And yet you break it right before there. He's saying, look, the, the law of Moses was given to you and you still can't keep it. But those who do the will of God, they will see my teaching as true. Really, here lies the problem of it all. You display that God's teaching is true when you obey it. If you're obeying it, then you can understand it. It is assumed that one who advances in knowledge of the teaching of Jesus is in accordance with verse 17. If you advance in understanding of Jesus, then you do the will of God. You will recognize that ultimately he is true like verse 18 says. So what is he saying here? He's not suggesting some shallow test, but rather deep personal commitment of the person to truth. One scholar says it this way, the Jews depended on education and authorities and received their doctrine second-handed. But Jesus insisted that we experience the authority of truth personally. An enlightened and an educated mind is no guarantee of a pure heart or a sanctified will. Jesus has already explained this. He says, if your lives are in harmony with God, then you'll recognize the character and the source of his teaching. Chapter 5, verse 42 said, where Jesus said this, he said, if they had the love of God in their hearts, they would recognize God's teaching at once. So what is he saying? Apart from God, you cannot have understanding. So he's saying everything that you have, everything that you know would come through me. So he's saying, he's literally laying all these religious leaders out and saying, you have the law, great, that's awesome, you can't keep it. You failed at keeping it. Here, let me show you one way you failed, just a simple one. Now, if you really want to understand and you want to know and you want to, you want to get close and intimate to God, it comes through me. This is what Jesus is saying. And only those who do the will of the Father will understand that because those who believe in me will do the will of the Father. Essentially, you could almost say it this way. In verse 17, when he says, you must will God's will in order to know my truth, he means you must join me in willing the Father's glory above our own glory. This is confirmed in 544 when he says, how can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? You can't know what, what is really there and the divine certainty of it if, if your will is not humbled to treasure the glory of God above your own. He's saying it, it's impossible for us to know him and continue to seek our own glory. Because if we know him, we would want none of it. We would want to give everything to him. And he said, you can't live a life that, that operates and knows him, but doesn't follow along with his will. It, it, it's interesting. I think, I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus felt what you feel completely. 
He knows what you feel. He knows how badly you want to be noticed. He knows how badly you want to be noticed in the things you do for your spouse, in the things you do for your employer. He knows how badly you want to be noticed by the, the, the people around you in community, by that certain special someone that you're trying to chase down in relationship. He knows. He knows exactly what that feels like. He's fully aware of exactly who you are. He notices you. I think it's important for us to understand that he notices you. And not only does he notice you, but he knows you. He knows you at the darkest spots that you refuse to let other people into. He knows when you're doing something and you, you say it's for his glory, but really inside you're being welled up in pride. He knows you. And here's the best part about this. Here's the most beautiful and profound thing. In, even though he knows just how capable I am of making it about myself and not him, he still went to the cross for me. He still went to the cross for you. He still spilled his blood for you while you were dead in your trespasses. He knows you. This is why it's so important for us to remember this because if we lose sight of that, then pretty soon we'll start thinking we're better than we are. We'll start seeking our own glory and then we might, in a moment, unintentionally stand in hostility towards Jesus' teachings, whether in our speaking or in our actions. He knows you. Fully aware of exactly who you are yet still loves you all the way to the cross where through faith alone, by grace alone, in him alone, you are saved, redeemed. So all the accolades that you're not getting from man, you have everything you need from Jesus. All the desire to be known and noticed by someone else, you have been known when you were knit together in your mother's womb and there hasn't been a day or a place you could go where he has not fully known you. This should well up in us not an opportunity to glorify ourselves, but to glorify him. But what gets in the middle of this and what gets in the way of this is this interesting statement that Jesus just kind of ends this in verse 24. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Oh, okay, well, what's right judgment? Jesus, thank you for that very vague answer. What's interesting is, is Jesus is fully aware of the hearts of everyone he's talking about. And the Jews expected an outward appearance of the Messiah to be kind of pompous and magnificent and to attend to all of their Jewish rituals and just kind of to fit in and just, just do it exactly the way they wanted. And the fact that Jesus was a carpenter and, and not a part of the rabbi schools or the educational system and the fact that he, he did these things, they were judging based on their religion, their idea of God as opposed to who God really is. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, don't judge on appearances. Don't assume that you know everything. We can't do that. We've got to judge on what is right. Their problem was they understood scriptures, but they only understood them superficially. My fear is many of us are at risk of doing that today. They missed the intents of many passages. They were judging by mere appearances. Their superficial understanding was caused by their hostility against God's representative, Jesus. And Jesus calls them to make a right judgment. Ultimately, you know what he's calling them to? Repent. That's the only judgment we can have before God in knowing who he is. Repent of who we are. Submit ourselves to him as king and lord of our lives. All these people trying to figure out who he is, and they continue to use the wrong metrics. They judge from the outside, not on the whole person. 
John 27 demands moral and theological discernment in the context of obedient faith. What's interesting to me is many of us want to judge God based on what he's doing or teaching us while we live completely disobediently to his commands. Before we close, I think it's worth asking us this. Like I said, in chapter 7, we're going to continue to lean in to this Feast of Booths, and he's going to change the narrative quite a bit next week for us. But there's a few questions I think it's worth us asking today. The first one is, is are you serving or teaching in a way that points all glory to God? When you serve, whether it's opening a door for someone or serving as a gospel community leader or serving to, to sing or lead worship or to teach or to, to do anything, when you are serving, when you are doing what God has commanded of you, when Jesus says that I came to, be, to serve, not to be served, and that we are to do in the likeness of him, when you're doing it, are you doing it in a way that you get in the way? That when people leave that moment, they go, wow, Brent is really amazing. If that's the case, I have failed at doing what God has asked me to do. The opposite is true as well. Are you looking for the person, not Jesus, in other people? When you're trying to encourage someone, are you encouraging the person higher at the wrong metric when they're saying, no, 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 no don't, don't do this to me. It's Jesus. You see in this text that Jesus is under authority. He's under the authority of God. He's only speaking and doing the Father's will. So the next question that I think that's important for us to understand, especially since we are to live this life to be like Jesus, is are you under authority? Do you, do you, do you allow yourself to be under authority? The things you say and do, are they submitted to the authority of God's word? Or do you justify reasons to go outside of God's word? To, to make it not fit your understanding to make it not work or apply to what you're doing. See, Jesus lived under authority to God and did his will perfectly, and in doing so, was able to fully deflect all glory to God. So then the, truth should be, the same should be true of us. If I can live submitted to God's will in this way, that means when I think something that isn't a part of God's will, I ask for forgiveness of it. That means when I do something that is in line to God's will, I repent of it. I turn from it. And I run back to the God who knows me and still went to the cross for me. The things you say and do, are they submitted to the word of God and to the lordship of Jesus? Or do you just keep excusing it away? In your finances, do you just keep excusing away what he asks you? He doesn't ask for a tenth. He asks you to be generous because everything you have is his. With your time, with the way you communicate, are you doing religion in hopes to make yourself look better before God? Because then it's about you and your glory and not his. Jesus uh, being under authority is confirmed by his willingness to only seek the glory of God with all of his teachings and over and over again in his way he lives his life. So I'll ask this question one more time. Are you seeking your glory or his? Do you hope that people would see God in your interactions or do you hope that they'd see you? And here's, here's the crazy thing about that question because I know in my heart at times I'm really saying I want God to be seen, but really I'm portraying and hoping that I will be seen. It's okay. Repent of that. Deflect 
the glory back to him. Rest in the goodness of his grace that we sang about before this. You also see that those who do the will of the Father understand and submit to his teaching. This is what it is saying. Those who do the will of the Father, we understand his teaching. This is, this is why it's so crazy to think that we can understand his teaching and completely live outside of his will. Or the opposite. Think that we can do his will, hide behind religion, and, and completely not understand his teaching. They, they go hand in hand. When you understand his teaching, you submit your life to Jesus' lordship. And that, that's, there's a cost to that, guys, a big cost. You have to die to yourself. There is no way to obey God and not submit to Jesus. And there's no way to live rightly before God and seek your own glory. Those cannot happen. They don't work together. In everything we do, we must live and teach like John the Baptist did in saying that I must decrease and he must increase. Less of me, more of him. It's a journey. It's a lifelong journey. And it's based not on your metrics or your will. It's based on his. He's the founder, the author, and the perfecter or completer of our faith. The faith is a gift by grace alone, through faith alone in him, in Jesus Christ, and him sanctifying us, him working it out in us is going to be more and more and more. And sooner or later, our goal, our hope, our desire should see that, that, that no one sees us, but they only see Jesus. In everything we do, and as a church, we are way more likely to accomplish this as a body when we do it together. We're going to move into a time of communion, and so if you guys want to grab some to take, that would be awesome. When you think of all the, the brilliance and beauty that communion speaks, why don't you guys, let's just let's stand to take communion, if that's okay. And those online, be standing with us, please. When you think of, of all the, the, the beauty that is behind communion and what it symbolizes and what it brings, I, I can't think of a reason, a, a better reason to... Um, to want to glorify our God than, than the picture of communion the cross and what Jesus has done for us. You know, the fact that Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life, he fulfilled the law that we couldn't fulfill, took the punishment for those who, who failed the law, all coinciding on the cross. And that, that, is, that is reason enough to, to send all glory to him and not ourselves. And so I think just today, I'm not even going to say a lot of words, when we partake of the bread and the juice, we do so in faith. It symbolizes that Jesus, Jesus' work on the cross was by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being nourished spiritually by the body and the blood of Christ. He's our bread of life. He's our living water. And we get to do this. In doing so, we get to glorify him by saying we are remembering to do this because of who he is and what he's done for us, who he is in doing in us and what he promises to do in the future. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup, which represents his sacrificial death. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. Let me pray and we will sing. God, thank you. Thank you for noticing me. Um, And not just seeing me from a distance, but noticing me in a way where you came down and intimately got into relationship with me through Jesus Christ. Father, for the ways that we continue to question who you are, if that's just in the practicality of how we live our lives, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. God, for the, for the individuals that are here today that or online that are listening, that maybe they, they don't feel like they've been noticed by you, God, would you, would you show them who you are? Would you draw them to repentance from their life and surrender to you? And God, forgive us for the ways that we um, so often try to operate like the world where we want to identify a person or encourage a person as opposed to the person of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for trying to take your glory when we have nothing that's, that's glorious. God, may we live our lives where glory is deflected to you. We speak where glory is deflected to you. And God, would we live and teach and walk in faithful obedience to your spirit that is indwelling us through the work you've done on the cross in Jesus Christ. It's in the wonderful, glorious name of Jesus, our Father and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God 